Brethren, it's an honor to be with the holders of the royal priesthood of God. We are living in the last days, in perilous times. As bearers of the priesthood, we have the responsibility to stand strong with a shield of faith against the fiery darts of the adversary. We are role models to the world, protecting God-given inalienable rights and freedoms. We stand in defense of our homes and our families. When I was in the ninth grade, I returned from my first out-of-town game with the varsity baseball team. My father discerned that on the long bus ride home, I'd witnessed language and behavior that was not in harmony with the standards of the gospel. Being a professional artist, he sat down and drew a picture of a knight, a warrior capable of defending castles and kingdoms. As he drew and read from the scriptures, I learned how to be a faithful priesthood holder, to protect and defend the kingdom of God. The words of the Apostle Paul were my guide. Quote, Wherefore, take upon you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt with the truth, and having the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. End of quote. Brethren, if we are faithful in the priesthood, this armor will be given to us as a gift from God. We need this armor. Young men, your fathers and grandfathers never faced the temptations that you face on a regular basis. You're living in the last days. If your father had wanted to get in trouble, he had to go searching for it. Not anymore. Today, temptation finds you. Please remember that. Satan desires to have you, and sin lieth at the door. How will you resist his aggressive tactics? Put on the whole armor of God. Let me teach you from another experience of my life. In January 1982, I spoke in a devotional on the BYU campus in Provo, Utah. I invited the students to imagine that the Church was on one side of the podium, right here, and the world was just a foot or two away on the other side. This represented the very short distance between the world was and where the Church standards were when I was in college. Standing before the students thirty years later, 
I held up my hands in the same manner. But the world has gone far afield. It's traveled. It's nowhere to be seen. It's proceeded way out, all the way out of this building, around the world. What we and our children and our girls, grandchildren have to remember is the Church will remain constant. It's still right here. The world will keep moving. That gap is becoming wider and wider. Therefore, be very careful. If you judge your actions and the standards of the Church on the basis of where the world is and where it's going, you will find you are not where you should be. Back then, I could have imagined how far and how fast the world would move away from God. It was impossible to understand that given doctrine and principles and commandments, and yet the standards of Christ and His Church have not moved. And He said, The truth abideth forever and ever. Where we understand and accept this, we are prepared to face the social pressure, ridicule, and even discrimination that will come from the world and some who call themselves friends. Most of us know someone who would say, if you want to be my friend, you'll have to accept my values. A true friend doesn't ask us to choose between the gospel and his or her friendship. To borrow the words of Paul, from such turn away. A true friend strengthens us to stay on the straight and narrow path, staying on the gospel path of covenants, commandments, ordinances, protects us and prepares us to do God's work in this world. When we obey the word of wisdom, our agency is protected from addictions like alcohol, drugs, and tobacco. And we, when we pay our tithing, study the scriptures, receive baptism and confirmation, live for the constant companionship of the Holy Ghost, partake of the sacrament worthily, obey the law of chastity, prepare for and receive the Melchizedek priesthood, and make sacred covenants of the temple, then we are prepared to serve. In the temple we are prepared and promised to live the law of consecration. Able young men begin to live this law by seeking a mission call, giving the timing of the first years of your life in full-time service of the Lord. That sacrifice strengthens each of you to go forward to the highest covenant in life. To many, it will be to be sealed in the temple and begin an eternal family. As we press forward along the straight and narrow path, we build progressive spiritual strength, strength in using our agency to act for ourselves, for both young men and young women. This growth is aided as you 
as you learn doctrine and share your testimonies through the new online curriculum, Come Follow Me. In addition, use your agency to develop yourself personally. As you discover your gifts and talents, remember that parents and mentors may assist you, but you must let the Spirit guide you. Choose and act for yourself. Be motivated from within. Make a plan for life, including education or vocational training. Explore interests and skills. Work and become self-reliant. Set goals. Overcome mistakes. Gain experience. And finish what you begin. Along the way, be sure to participate in family, quorum, class, and combined mutual activities. Enjoy wholesome fun together. Through these experiences, you will come to respect and appreciate one another's spiritual gifts and the eternal complementary natures of the sons and daughters of God. Above all, have faith in the Savior. Fear not. As we diligently live the gospel, we become strong in the Lord. With His strength, we are able to reject the Antichrist who says, Eat, drink, and be merry. For God will justify you in committing a little sin. There is no harm in this, for tomorrow we die. End of quote. In the strength of the Lord, we are able to stand against any philosophy or greed that denies the Savior and contradicts the great eternal plan of happiness for all God's children. We are not authorized to negotiate the conditions of that eternal plan. Remember Nehemiah, who was charged with building a wall to protect Jerusalem. Some wanted him to come down and compromise his position, but Nehemiah refused. He was not intolerant of others. He simply explained, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease? Sometimes we become the lightning rod, and we must take the heat for holding fast to God's standards and doing His work. I testify, we need not be afraid if we are grounded in His doctrine. We may experience misunderstanding, criticism, even false accusation, but we are never alone. Our Savior was despised and rejected of men. It is our sacred privilege to stand with Him. Ironically, standing strong sometimes means avoiding even fleeing from the world. The Savior declared, Get thee behind me, Satan. Joseph of Egypt ran from the temptations of Potiphar's wife, and Lehi left behind Jerusalem and took his family into the wilderness. Be assured that all of the prophets before us stood strong in their day. 
Nephi performed the curious work of the Lord despite the buffetings of Satan and the persecutions of Laman and Lemuel, his brothers. Abinadi testified of Christ in the face of suspicion, scorn, and certain death. The 2,000 stripling warriors defended their families against those who despised gospel values. Moroni raised the title of liberty to reserve his people's families and religious freedom. Samuel stood on a wall and prophesied of Christ's coming while rocks and arrows were assailing him. The prophet Joseph Smith restored the Savior's gospel, sealing his testimony with his blood. And Mormon pioneers stood strong in the face of withering opposition and hardship, following a prophet in their great trek and settlement of the West. These great servants and saints of God were able to stand strong because they stood with the Savior. Consider how the Savior stood strong. As a young man, Jesus faithfully went about his father's business, reaching the gospel, preaching the gospel to learned men in the temple. Throughout his ministry, he accomplished the work of the priesthood, teaching, healing, serving, blessing, lifting others. When appropriate, he boldly stood against evil, even cleansing the temple. He also stood for truth, whether with the words or with dignified silence, when the chief priest accused him before Caiaphas, Joseph wisely and courageously refused to respond to untruth and beheld his peace. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as our Savior and Redeemer did not shrink from drinking the bitter cup of the Atonement, and on the cross he suffered again to do his Father's will, until at last he could say, It is finished. He had endured to the end. In response to the Savior's perfect obedience and standing strong, our Heavenly Father declared, Behold my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, in whom I have glorified my name. My beloved priesthood brother, young and old, let us glorify God's name by standing strong with our Savior. Jesus Christ, I bear my special witness that He lives and that we are called with a holy calling to participate in His work. Wherefore, stand ye in holy places and be not moved. Standing obedient and strong on the doctrine of our God, we stand in holy places, for His doctrine is sacred and will not change in the social and political winds of our day. I declare, as did the Apostle Paul, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith, behave like men, and be strong. This is my fervent prayer 
for you in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Twice each year, this magnificent conference center seems to say to us with its persuasive voice, Come all ye sons of God who have received the priesthood. There's a characteristic spirit which pervades the general priesthood meeting of the Church. Tonight, there are many thousands of our number throughout the world who are serving the Lord as His missionaries. As I mentioned in my message this morning, we currently have over 65,000 missionaries in the field, with thousands more who are waiting to enter the Missionary Training Center, whose applications are currently being processed. We love and commend those who are willing and anxious to serve. The Holy Scriptures contain no proclamation more relevant, no responsibility more binding, no instruction more direct than the injunction given by the resurrected Lord as He appeared in Galilee to the eleven disciples. Said He, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. This divine command, coupled with this glorious promise, is our watchword today as it was in the meridian of time. Missionary work is an identifying feature of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Always has it been, ever shall it be. As the Prophet Joseph Smith declared, after all that's been said, the greatest and most important duty is to preach the gospel. Within two short years, all of the full-time missionaries currently serving in this royal army of God will have concluded their labors and will have returned to their homes and loved ones. For the elders, their replacements are found tonight in the ranks of the ironic priesthood of the Church. Young man, are you ready to respond? Are you willing to work? Are you prepared to serve? At best, missionary work necessitates drastic adjustment to one's pattern of living, requires long hours, great devotion, selfless sacrifice, and fervent prayer. As a result, dedicated missionary service returns a dividend of eternal joy, which extends throughout mortality and into eternity. The challenge is to be more profitable servants in the Lord's vineyard. This applies to all of us. Whatever our age, and not alone to those who are preparing to serve as full-time missionaries, or to each of us comes the mandate to share the gospel of Christ. May I suggest a formula that will ensure our success? First, 
Search the scriptures with diligence. Second, plan your life with purpose. And I might add, plan your life regardless of your age. Third, teach the truth with testimony. And fourth, serve the Lord with love. Let us consider each of the four parts of the formula. First, search the scriptures with diligence. The scriptures testify of God and contain the words of eternal life. They become the foundation of our message. The emphasis of the Church curricula is the Holy Scriptures, programmed and coordinated through the correlation effort. We're encouraged as well to study the Scriptures each day, both individually and with our families. Let me provide but one reference, which has immediate application to our lives. In the Book of Mormon, the 17th chapter of Alma, we read the account of Alma's joy as he once more saw the sons of Messiah and noted their steadfastness in the cause of truth. The record tells us, quote, they had waxed strong in the knowledge of the truth, for they were men of a sound understanding. They had searched the scriptures diligently that they might know the word of God. But this is not all. They had given themselves to much prayer and fasting. Therefore, they had the spirit of prophecy and the spirit of revelation. And when they taught, they taught with power and authority of God. Brethren, search the scriptures with diligence. Second in our formula, plan your life with purpose. Perhaps no generation of youth has faced such far-reaching decisions as the youth of today. Provision must be made for school, mission, and marriage. For some, military service will be included. Preparation for a mission begins early. In addition to spiritual preparation, a wise parent will provide the means whereby a young son might commence his personal missionary fund. He may well be encouraged as the years go by to study foreign language so that, if necessary, his language skills could be utilized. Eventually, there comes that glorious day when the bishop and stake president invite the young man in for a visit. Worthiness is ascertained. A missionary recommendation is completed. During no other time does the entire family so anxiously watch and wait for the mailman and the letter which contains the return address, 47 East South Temple, Salt Lake City, Utah. The letter arrives. The suspense is overwhelming. The call is read. Often the assigned field of labor is far away from home. Regardless of the location, however the response other prepared and obedient missionary is the same. I will serve. Preparations for departure began. Young men, I hope you appreciate the sacrifices which your parents so willingly make in order for you 
to serve. Their labors will sustain you. Their faith encourage you. Their prayers uphold you. A mission is a family affair. Though the expanse of continents or oceans may separate, hearts are as one. Brethren, as you plan with purpose your lives, remember that your missionary opportunities are not restricted to the period of a formal call. For those of you who serve in the military, such time can and should be profitable. Each year, our young men in uniform bring many souls into the kingdom of God by honoring their priesthood, living the commandments of God, and teaching to others the Lord's divine word. Do not overlook your privilege to be missionaries while you are pursuing your formal education. For example, as the Latter-day Saint will be observed, weighed, and oft-times emulated. Brethren, whatever your age, whatever your circumstance, I admonish you to plan your life with purpose. Now to the third point in our formula. Teach the truth with testimony. Obey the counsel of the prophet, the Apostle Peter, who urged, Be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you, reason of the hope that is in you. Lift up your voices and testify to the true nature of the Godhead. Declare your witness concerning the Book of Mormon. Convey the glorious and beautiful truths contained in the plan of salvation. When I served as a mission president in Canada, good heavens, more than 50 years ago, <laughs> one young missionary who came from a small rural community marveled at the size of Toronto. He was short in stature, but tall in testimony. Long after his arrival, together with his companion, he called it the home of Elmer Pollard in Oshawa, Ontario, Canada, feeling sorry for the young man who, during a blinding blizzard, were going house to house. Mr. Pollard invited the missionaries into his home. They presented to him their message. He did not catch the spirit. In due time, he asked that they leave and not return. His last words to the elders as they departed his front porch were spoken in derision, and I quote them. You can't tell me you actually believe Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. The door was shut. The elders walked down the path. Our country boy spoke to his companion. Elder, we didn't respond to Mr. Pollard. He said we didn't believe Joseph Smith was a true prophet. Let's return and bear our testimonies to him. At first, the more experienced missionary hesitated, but finally agreed to accompany his companion. Fear struck their hearts as they approached the door from which they had just been ejected. They knocked, confronted Mr. Pollard, 
been an agonizing moment. And then with power, born of the Spirit, our inexperienced missionary spoke. Mr. Pollard, you said we didn't really believe. Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. I testify to you that Joseph was a prophet. He did translate the Book of Mormon. He saw God the Father and Jesus the Son. I know it. Sometime later, Mr. Pollard, now Brother Pollard, stood in a priesthood meeting and declared, That night I could not sleep. Resounding in my ears, I heard the words, Joseph Smith was a prophet of God. I know it. I know it. I know it. The next day I telephoned the missionaries and asked them to return. Their message, coupled with their testimonies, changed my life and the lives of my family. Close quote. Brethren, teach the truth with testimony. The final point in our formula is to serve the Lord with love. There is no substitute for love. Successful missionaries love their companions, their missionary leaders, and the precious persons whom they teach. In the fourth section of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Lord established the qualifications for the labors of the ministry. Let us consider but a few verses. Quote, O ye that embark in the service of God, see that ye serve Him with all your heart, might, mind, and strength, that ye may stand blameless before God at the last day. And faith, hope, charity, and love, with an eye single to the glory of God, qualify Him for the work. Remember, faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, brotherly kindness, godliness, charity, humility, diligence. Well, might each of you within the sound of my voice ask himself the question, Today, have I increased in faith, in virtue, in knowledge, in godliness, in love? Through your dedicated devotion, at home or abroad, those souls whom you help to save may well be those whom you love the most. Many years ago, dear friends of mine, Craig Sudbury and his mother Pearl came to my office prior to Craig's departure for the Australia-Melbourne mission. Fred Sudbury, Craig's father, was noticeably absent. Twenty-five years earlier, Craig's mother had married Fred, who did not share her love for the Church, and he was not a member. Craig confided to me his deep and abiding love for his parents and his hope that somehow, in some way, his father would be touched by the Spirit and open his heart to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I prayed for inspiration how such a desire might be fulfilled. The inspiration came, and I said to Craig, Serve the Lord with all your heart, 
be obedient to your sacred calling. Each week, write a letter to your parents. And on occasion, write to Dad personally. Let him know how much you love him. And tell him why you're grateful to be a son. He thanked me, but his mother departed the office. I was not to see Craig's mother for some 18 months when she came to my office and in sentences punctuated by tears said to me, it's been almost two years since Craig left for his mission. He has never failed in writing a letter to us each week. Recently, my husband Fred, for the first time in a testimony meeting, and it surprised me. I shocked everyone who was there by announcing he had made the decision to become a member of the Church. He indicated that he and I would go to Australia to meet Craig at the conclusion of his mission so that Fred could be Craig's final baptism as a full-time missionary. No missionary stood so tall as did Craig Sudbury, when far off Australia, he helped his father into water waist-deep and, raising his right arm to the square, repeated those sacred words, Frederick Charles Sudbury, having been commissioned of Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Love had won its victory. Serve the Lord with love. Brethren, may each one of us search the scriptures with diligence, plan his life with purpose, teach the truth with testimony, and serve the Lord with love. The perfect shepherd of our souls, the missionary who redeemed mankind, give us his divine assurance, and I quote, if it, be so, if it so be that you should labor all your days in crying repentance unto this people and bring, save it be one soul unto me, how great shall be your joy with him in the kingdom of my Father. And now, if your joy will be great with one soul that you brought unto me into the kingdom of my Father, how great will be your joy. You should bring many souls unto me. Of him who spoke these words, I declare my witness. He is the Son of God, our Redeemer and our Savior. I pray that we may ever respond to his gentle invitation, Follow thou me. In his holy name, even the name of Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. The Lord made it very clear at the start of this last dispensation that we were to take the gospel to all the world. What he said to the few priesthood holders in 1831, he says to the many now. Whatever our age, capacity, church calling, or location, we are as one called to the work 
to help him in his harvest of souls until he comes again. He said to those first laborers in the vineyard, And again I say unto you, I give unto you a commandment, that every man, both elder, priest, teacher, and also member, go to with his might, with the labor of his hands, to prepare and accomplish the things which I have commanded. And let your preaching be the warning voice, every man to his neighbor, in mildness and in meekness. And go ye out from among the wicked. Save yourselves. Be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. Now you members of the Aaronic Priesthood can see that the Lord's command includes you, since you know that the Lord always prepares a way to keep His commandments, you can expect that He will do that for each of you. Let me tell you of how He did it for one boy who now holds the office of priest in the Aaronic Priesthood. He is 16 years old. He lives in a country where the missionaries first arrived just a year ago. They were assigned to two cities, but not to the city where the boy lives. When he was very young, his parents brought him to Utah for safety. The family was taught and baptized by the missionaries. He was not baptized in the Church because he was not yet eight years of age. His parents were killed in an accident. So his grandmother had him return to his home across the ocean back to the city where he had been born. He was walking on the street in March just a year ago when he felt that he should speak to a woman he did not know. He spoke with her in the English he still remembered. She was a nurse sent by the mission president to his city to look for housing and medical care for the missionaries who would be assigned there soon. He and she became friends as they talked. When she got back to the mission headquarters, she told the missionaries about him. The first two elders arrived in September of 2012. The orphan boy was their first baptism into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. By March of this year, he had been a member for four months. He had been ordained a priest in the Aaronic Priesthood and so could baptize the second convert to the Church. He was the first priesthood pioneer to gather other children of the Heavenly Father with him to establish the Church in a city of approximately 130,000 people. On Easter Sunday, March 31, 2013, the Church membership had grown to the huge number of six members in that city. He was the only local member who attended the meeting that Sunday. His knee had been injured the day before, but he was determined to be there, and he had prayed that he could be able to walk to church. And so he was there. He shared the sacrament with four young elders and a missionary couple, total congregation. That story does not seem remarkable unless you recognize in it the pattern of God's hand in building His kingdom. I have seen it many times. I saw, saw it in New Mexico as a young man. For the generations, the prophets have told us that we must help the missionaries find and teach the honest in heart and, and then love those 
who come into the kingdom. I have seen for myself what faithful priesthood leaders and members can do. In 1955, I became an officer in the United States Air Force. My bishop at home gave me a blessing just before I left for my first station, which was in Albuquerque, New Mexico. In his blessing, he said that my time in the Air Force would be missionary service. I arrived in church on my first Sunday at the Albuquerque First Branch. A man walked up to me, introduced himself as the district president, and told me that he was going to call me to serve as a district missionary. I told him that I would only be there for training for a few weeks, and then I would be assigned somewhere else in the world. He said, I don't know about that, but we are to call you to serve. In the middle of my military training, by what appeared to be chance, I was chosen from hundreds of officers being trained to take the place in the headquarters for an officer who had died suddenly. So, for two years, I was there. I worked in my office. On most evenings and every weekend, I taught the gospel of Jesus Christ to people the members brought to us. My companions and I averaged more than 40 hours a month in our missionary service without once having to knock on doors to find someone to teach. The members filled our plates so full that we often taught two families in an evening. I saw for myself the power and the blessing in the repeated call of prophets for every member to be a missionary. On the last Sunday before I left Albuquerque, the first stake was organized in that city. There is now a sacred temple there, a house of the Lord. In a city where we once met in a single chapel with saints who brought friends to us to be taught and to feel the witness of the Spirit, those friends felt a welcoming home in the Lord's true Church. I saw it next in New England as I went to school. I was called as the counselor to a great district president who had been bought, brought from disinterest in the Church to a man of great spiritual power. His home teacher loved him enough to ignore his cigar and see what God could see in him. The district president and I drove over the hills and along the shores to visit tiny branches that dotted Massachusetts and Rhode Island to build and bless the kingdom of God. In the years I served with that great leader, we watched people draw friends to the Church by their example and by their invitation to listen to the missionaries. To me, the growth of those branches seemed slow and faltering. But on the Sunday I left, five years later, two apostles came to organize our district into a stake in the Longfellow Park Chapel in Cambridge. Years later, I returned to conduct a state conference there. The stake president took me to see a rocky hill in Belmont. He told me it would be a perfect place for a temple of God. One stands there now. When I gaze on it, I remember the humble members I sat with in tiny branches, the neighbors they invited, and the missionaries who were teaching them. There is a new deacon in this meeting here tonight. I was with him on the same Easter Sunday that the priest whom I spoke of previously walked to his one-member meeting. The deacon beamed as his father said that he would be in this priesthood meeting with him tonight. This father was a great missionary in the same mission where his grandfather had been 
where his father had been the president. I have seen the 1937 missionary handbook of his great-grandfather. His heritage in bringing people to the Church runs deep. And so I spoke with that deacon's bishop to learn what experiences the boy might expect in meeting the charge of the priesthood to work in the gathering of souls for the Lord. The bishop was enthusiastic as he described how the ward mission leader tracked the progress of investigators. He gets that information from regular contact with the missionaries. The bishop and his ward council discuss every progressing investigator. They decide what they can do for each person and their families to help them become friends before baptism, to include them in activities, and to nurture those who are baptized. He said that the missionaries on occasion have enough appointments to teach that they take Aaronic priesthood holders as companions. The Ward Mission Plan includes the goals of the quorums to invite those they know to meet with the missionaries. Even the Deacon's Quorum Presidency is invited to set goals and plan for their quorum members to help bring those they know into the Kingdom of God. Now, the Deacon in the Strong Ward and the priest, the new priest, the convert in the tiny member group may seem to have little in common with each other or with you. And you may not see much similarity with your experiences in building up the Church with what I saw as miracles in New Mexico and in New England. But there is one way in which we are one in our charge in the priesthood. We sanctify ourselves and fulfill our individual duties of the commandment to take the gospel to all of our Heavenly Father's children. We share experiences in the way in which the Lord builds His kingdom on earth. In His Church, with all the wonderful tools and organizations we have been given, there is still a fundamental truth taught by prophets of how we are to fill our priesthood mandate of missionary work. In the 1959 April General Conference, President David O. McKay taught this principle, as have the prophets since his day, including President Thomas S. Monson. President McKay related in his closing comments that in, the 19, in 1923 in the British Mission, there was a general instruction sent out to the members of the Church. President McKay said the decision was, throw the responsibility upon every member of the Church that in the coming year of 1923, every member will be a missionary. Every member a missionary. You may bring your mother into the Church, or it may be your father, perhaps your fellow companion in the workshop. Somebody will hear the good message of the truth through you. And President McKay continued, and this is the message today. Every member, a million and a half, can you imagine we were once a million and a half? Now we're more. A missionary. When it was announced in 2002 that missionary work would become the responsibility of the bishops, I marveled. I'd been one. <laughs> it seemed to me they were already carrying a load close to their limits in ministering to the members and directing the organizations in the ward. One bishop I knew saw it not as an added duty but as an opportunity to draw the ward together in a great cause where every member became a missionary. He called a ward mission leader. He met with the missionaries himself every Saturday to learn about their work, to encourage them, 
and to learn about the progress of their investigators. The word counsel found ways for organizations and quorums to use service experiences as missionary preparation. And as a judge in Israel, he helped young people feel the blessings of the Atonement to keep them pure. Recently, I asked how he explained the surge of convert baptisms in his ward and the increase in the number of young people ready and eager to take the gospel of Jesus Christ out to the world. He said it seemed to him that it was not so much the duty anyone performed, but the way they all became one in their enthusiasm to bring people into the community of saints that had brought them such happiness. For some it was that and more. Like the sons of Mosiah, they had felt the effects of sin in their own lives and the marvelous healing of the Atonement within the Church of God out of love and gratitude for the Savior's gift to them. They wanted to help everyone they could to escape the sadness of sin, feel the joy of forgiveness, and gather with them to safety in the kingdom of God. It was the love of God and the love for their friends and neighbors that unified them to serve the people. They desired to take the gospel to everyone in their part of the world, and they prepared their children to be worthy to be called by the Lord to teach, to testify, and to serve in other parts of His vineyard. Whether it is in the large ward where the new deacon will perform his duty to share the gospel and build up the kingdom, or in the tiny group far away where the new priest serves, they will be one in purpose. The deacon will be inspired by the love of God to reach out to a friend not yet a member. He will include his friend in some service or activity in the Church and then invite him and his family to be taught by the missionaries. To those who are baptized, he will be the friend they will meet. The priest will invite others to join with him in the tiny group of saints where he has felt the love of God and the blessed peace of the Atonement. If he continues faithful in his priesthood duty, he will see the group become a branch, and then a stake of Zion will come to his city. There will be a ward with a caring bishop. It could be one of his sons or grandsons who will someday take a servant of God to a nearby hill and say, This would be a wonderful place for a temple. I pray that wherever we are and whatever duties we have in the priesthood of God, we will be united in the cause to bring the gospel to all the world, and that we will encourage people we love to be cleansed from sin, to be happy with us in the kingdom of God. In the name of Jesus Christ, whose Church this is. Amen. My dear brethren and beloved friends, it fills my heart with gratitude and joy to be with you and especially to sing with you together. What a beautiful moment. I commend you fathers and grandfathers who have brought your sons and grandsons. I congratulate you young men who have chosen to be here today. This is the place for you to be. I hope you can feel the brotherhood that unites us. And I pray that here among your brothers you will feel and find belonging, support, and friendship. We men sometimes identify ourselves by titles. 
Many of us have multiple titles, and each says something important about our identity. For example, some titles describe our roles in families, such as son, brother, husband, and father. Other titles describe our occupations in the world, such as doctor, soldier, or craftsman. And some describe our positions within the Church. Today, I would like to suggest four titles that I believe apply to all priesthood holders around the world, titles that may help us recognize our individual roles in God's eternal plan and our potential as priesthood holders in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. One title that defines all of us in the most fundamental way is Son of Heavenly Father. No matter what else we are or do in life, we must never forget that we are God's literal spirit children. We were His children before we came to this world, and we will be His children forevermore. This basic truth should change the way we look at ourselves, our brothers and sisters, and life itself. Unfortunately, none of us quite lives up to everything that this title implies, for all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It can be discouraging at times to know what it means to be a son of God and yet come up short. The adversary likes to take advantage of these feelings. Satan would rather that you define yourself by your sins instead of your divine potential. Brethren, don't listen to him. We have all seen a toddler learn to walk. He takes a small step and totters. He falls. Do we scold such an attempt? Of course not. What father would punish a toddler for stumbling? We encourage, we applaud, and we praise because with every small step, the child is becoming more like his parents. Now, brethren, compared to the perfection of God, we mortals are scarcely more than awkward, faltering toddlers. But our loving Heavenly Father wants us to become more like Him. And, dear brethren, that should be our eternal goal, too. God understands that we get there not in an instant, but by taking one step at a time. I do not believe in a God who would set up rules and commandments only to wait for us to fail so He could punish us. I believe in a Heavenly Father who is loving and caring and who rejoices in our every effort to stand tall and walk toward Him. Even when we stumble, He urges us not to be discouraged, never to give up or flee our allotted field of service, but to take courage, find our faith, 
and keep trying. Our Father in Heaven mentors His children and often sends unseen heavenly help to those who desire to follow the Savior. And that leads us to the next title we all have in common. All who strive earnestly to follow the Christ are called His disciples. Although we recognize that none of us are perfect, we do not use that fact as an excuse to lower our expectations, to live beneath our privileges, to, de to delay the day of our repentance, or to refuse to grow into better, more perfect, more refined followers of our Master and King. Remember that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is built not for men and women who are perfect or unaffected by mortal temptations, but rather it is built for people exactly like you and me. And it is built upon the rock of our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, through whose atonement we can be cleansed and become fellow citizens of the household of God. Without the atonement of Jesus Christ, life would be a dead-end road without hope or future. With the atonement, life is ennobling, inspiring journey of growth and development that leads to eternal life in the presence of our Heavenly Father. But while the Atonement is meant to help us all become more like Christ, it is not meant to make us all the same. Sometimes we confuse differences in personality with sin. We can even make the mistake of thinking that because someone is different from us, it must mean they are not pleasing to God. This line of thinking leads some to believe that the Church wants to create every member from a single mold, that each one should look, feel, think, and behave like every other. This would contradict the genius of God, who created every man different from his brother, every son different from his father. Even identical twins are not identical in their personalities and spiritual identities. It also contradicts the intent and purpose of the Church of Jesus Christ, which acknowledges and protects the moral agency with all its far-reaching consequences of each and every one of God's children. As disciples of Jesus Christ, we are united in our testimony of the restored gospel of, and our commitment to keep God's commandments. But we are diverse in our cultural, social, and political preferences. The Church thrives when we take advantage of this diversity and encourage each other to develop and use our talents to lift and strengthen our fellow disciples. Brethren, 
Discipleship is a lifelong journey following our Savior. Along our metaphorical path from Bethlehem to Golgotha, we will have many opportunities to abandon our journey. At times, it will seem that the path requires more than we had wished for. But as men of the priesthood, we must have the courage to follow our Redeemer, even when our cross seems too heavy to bear. With every step we take following the Son of God, we may be reminded that we are not perfect yet, but let us be steadfast and constant disciples. Let us not give up. Let us be true to our covenants. Let us never lose sight of our Advocate and Redeemer as we walk toward Him, one imperfect step after another. Brethren, if, you, if we all truly follow our Lord Jesus Christ, we must embrace a third title, Healer of Souls. We who have been ordained to the priesthood of God are called to practice the healer's art. It is our job to build up, repair, strengthen, uplift, and make whole. Our assignment is to follow the Savior's example and reach out to those who suffer. We mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. We bind up the wounds of the afflicted. We succor the weak and lift up the hands which hang down and strengthen the feeble knees. As home teachers, we are healers. As priesthood leaders, we are healers. As fathers, sons, brothers, and husbands, we should be committed and dedicated healers. We carry in one hand a vial of consecrated oil for the blessing of the sick. In the other, we carry a loaf of bread to feed the hungry. And in our hearts, we carry the peaceable word of God, which healeth the wounded soul. This is our first and foremost responsibility as priesthood holders, and it applies to both Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood holders. The restored gospel of Jesus Christ blesses lives not just when we believe it, but much more when we live it. It is in the application of gospel principles that individuals are uplifted and families are strengthened. It is our privilege and responsibility not just to talk the talk, but to walk the walk. The Savior is the worker of miracles. He is the great healer. He is our example, our light, even in the darkest moments, and he shows us the right way. Let us follow him. Let us rise up to our role and become healers by serving God and our fellow man. The fourth title we all share returns us to the first title in our list. As sons of our Heavenly Father, we are heirs to all that He has. 
The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. End of quote. Think of this, my beloved brethren. We are joint heirs with Christ. How beautiful. So does it make any sense that many of us spend so much of our valuable time, thoughts, means, and energies in pursuit of prestige or wealth, or to be entertained by the newest and coolest electronic gadgets? The Lord has put before us the divine promise that whoso is faithful unto the obtaining these two priesthoods, magnifying their calling, will receive me, says the Lord, and he that receiveth me receiveth my Father. Therefore, all that my Father hath shall be given unto him. It is beyond my power of thought to imagine all that this promise entails. But I do know it is grand, it is divine, it is eternal, and it is worth all of our efforts in life. Knowing this, how can we not willingly and joyfully engage in serving the Lord and fellow men and living up to our responsibilities in the priesthood of God? This is the most noble labor that will challenge our every sense and stretch our every ability. Do we desire to see the heavens open and witness the promptings of the Holy Spirit showing us the way? Then let's take up our sickle and put our back into this great work, a cause much greater than ourselves. Serving God and our fellow man will challenge us and transform us into something greater than we ever thought possible. Perhaps you might think that you are not needed, that you are overlooked or unwanted, that you are nobody. I am sincerely sorry if any priesthood holder feels this way. Certainly, you are not overlooked or unwanted by your Heavenly Father. He loves you. And I tell you with certainty that you are needed by your church. Do you not know that God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise? And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Perhaps it is true that we are weak. Perhaps we are not wise or mighty. But when God works through us, no one and nothing can stand against us. This is why you are needed. You have your own special contribution to make, and God can magnify that contribution in a mighty way. Your ability to contribute is not dependent upon your calling in the Church. Your opportunities for service are endless. If you are waiting on the sidelines, I encourage you to get in the game. 
Don't wait for a particular calling before you become fully engaged in building the kingdom of God. As a priesthood holder, you are already called to the work. Study the Word of God daily. Pray to Heavenly Father every day. Internalize the principles of the restored gospel. Give thanks to God and ask for His guidance. Then live what you learn, first in your family, but also in all situations of your life. In the great composer's symphony, you have your own particular part to play, your own notes to sing. Fail to perform them, and with certainty the symphony will go on. But if you rise up and join the chorus and allow the power of God to work through you, you will see the windows of heaven open and he will pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Rise up to your true potential as a son of God and you can be a force for good in your family, your home, your community, your nation, and indeed in the world. And in the process, as you lose your life in the service of others, you will grow and develop until you reach the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Then you will be prepared to inherit what with Christ everything your Father has. My dear brethren, my dear friends, you are important. You are loved. You are needed. This work is true. The priesthood you are privileged to bear is indeed of God. I pray that as you ponder the many titles of a worthy priesthood holder, you will discover a divine wind at your back, lifting you ever upward toward the great inheritance your Heavenly Father has reserved for you. I leave you this blessing and my testimony in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Young man of the Aaronic Priesthood, you are beloved sons of God, and he has a great work for you to do. To accomplish this work, you must fulfill your sacred duty to minister to others. Do you know what it means to minister? Think about this question while I tell you about a girl named Shai Johnson. When Shai started high school last year, she became the victim of cruel and thoughtless bullying. She was mistreated, shoved, and taunted as she walked to class. Some students even threw garbage at her. You have probably seen people mistreated like this in your school, too. For too many people, the teenage years are a time of loneliness and fear. It doesn't have to be this way. Fortunately for Shai, there were young men at her school who understood what it means to minister. Shai's mother had asked teachers at the school to help stop the bullying, but it continued. She then contacted Carson Jones, an ironic priesthood holder and the starting quarterback of the football team. She asked him to help her find out who was doing the bullying. Carson agreed to help, 
but in his heart he felt that he could do much more than just identify the bullies. The Spirit whispered to him that he needed to help Shy feel loved. Carson asked some of his teammates to join him in ministering to Shy. They invited her to sit with them during lunch. They walked her to class to make sure she was safe. Not surprisingly, with football players as her close friends, no one bullied Shy anymore. This was an exciting season for the football team. But even with the thrill of an undefeated season, these young men did not forget about Shy. They invited her to join the team on the field after games. Shy felt loved and appreciated. She felt safe. She was happy. The football team went on to win the state title, but something more important than a football championship happened at their school. The example of these young men has motivated other students to be more accepting, more friendly. They now treat each other with more kindness and respect. National news media found out what these young men had done and shared their story across the country. What began as an effort to minister to one is inspiring thousands of others to do the same. Shai's mother calls these young men angels in disguise. Carson and his friends are quick to say that Shai has blessed their lives much more than they blessed hers. That's what happens when you lose yourself in serving others. You find yourself. You change and grow in ways that would not be possible otherwise. These young men have experienced the joy of ministering and continue to seek opportunities to bless others. They are anxious to extend their ministering in the coming months when they serve as full-time missionaries. There are thousands of Shai Johnsons throughout the world, people who need to feel Heavenly Father's love. They are in your schools, in your quorums, and even in your family. Some come to mind quickly. Others have needs that are less obvious. Virtually everyone you know could be blessed in some way by your ministering. The Lord is counting on you to reach out to them. You don't have to be a star athlete to minister to others. You receive the power, the authority, and the sacred duty to minister the moment you were ordained to the priesthood. President James E. Faust taught, Priesthood is the authority delegated to man to minister in the name of God. The Aaronic Priesthood holds the keys of the ministering of angels. As you love His children, Heavenly Father will guide you and angels will assist you. You will be given power to bless lives and rescue souls. Jesus Christ is your example. He came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. To minister means to love and care for others. It means to attend to their physical and spiritual needs. Put simply, it means to do what the Savior would do if He were here. Start in your own home. This is where you can do your most important ministering. Do you want to try an interesting experiment? The next time your mother asks for your help around the house, say something like, Thank you for asking, Mom. I would love to help. Then watch her reaction. <laughs> Some of you might want to brush up on your first aid skills before you try this. You may send her into shock. After you revive her, 
you'll find a noticeable improvement in your relationship with her and an increase of the spirit in your home. That's just one way to minister to your family. There are many others. You minister as you speak kind words to family members. You minister as you treat your siblings like your best friends. Perhaps most importantly, you minister as you assist your father in his duties as the spiritual leader in your home. Give your full support and encouragement to family home evening, family prayer, and family scripture study. Do your part to ensure that the Spirit is present in your home. This will strengthen your father in his role and prepare you to be a father someday. If you do not have a father in your home, your responsibility to minister to your family is even more needed. You also have a duty to minister in your quorum. The priesthood is expanding across the world. Many of you are heeding President Monson's call to rescue. There are more active Aaronic priesthood holders today than ever before in the history of the Church. Yet there are still those who are not active and who need you. Last June, when a new branch was created in Bangalore, India, the only young man in priesthood meeting was a recently ordained deacon named Gladwin. Gladwin, along with the young men president and branch president, began calling the less active young men and visiting them in their homes. Soon, a second young man, Samuel, started coming to church again. Each week, Gladwin and Samuel called those who had not attended quorum meeting and shared what they had learned. They also called or visited them on their birthdays. One by one, the less active young men became their friends and began to accept invitations to come to quorum activities, to attend quorum meetings, and eventually to do their own ministering. Today, all of the young men in the branch are active in the Church. The scriptures teach that Aaronic priesthood quorums are to sit in council and edify or build up and strengthen one another. You edify as you teach gospel truths, share spiritual experiences, and bear testimony. The youth curriculum encourages these kinds of interactions in quorum meetings, but this can happen only when every member of the quorum feels loved and respected. Mocking and teasing have no place in a quorum meeting, especially when feelings are openly shared. Quorum presidencies must take the lead in ensuring that quorum meetings are a safe place for everyone to participate. The Apostle Paul admonished, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Priesthood holders never use vulgar or filthy language. They never demean or hurt others. They always build up and strengthen others. This is a simple but powerful way to minister. The work of ministering is not confined to ordinances or home teaching visits or occasional service projects. We are always priesthood men, not just on Sunday and not only when we are wearing white shirts and ties. We have a duty to minister wherever we stand. Ministering is not just something we do. It defines who we are. Minister every day. Opportunities are all around you. Look for them. Ask the Lord to help you recognize them. You will find that most consist of small, sincere acts that help others become followers of Jesus Christ. 
as you strive to be worthy of the Spirit, you will recognize thoughts and feelings prompting you to minister. As you act on these promptings, you will receive more of them, and your opportunities and ability to minister will increase and expand. My young brethren, I testify that you have been given the authority and power of the magnificent Aaronic Priesthood to minister in God's name. I testify that as you do, you will be an instrument in God's hands to help others. Your life will be richer and more meaningful. You will find greater strength to resist evil. You will find true happiness, the kind that is known only by true followers of Jesus Christ. May you experience the joy of fulfilling your sacred duty to minister, I pray. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. In 1878, my great-grandfather, George F. Richards, was 17 years of age. As was sometimes the case in those days, he had already been ordained an elder. One Sunday, his mother was groaning in intense pain. As his father was not available, the bishop and several others were invited to give her a blessing, but no relief came. Accordingly, she turned to her son George and asked him to lay hands on her head. He wrote in his diary, In the midst of my tears for my mother's suffering and the task of performing an administration such as I had never yet done, I retired to another room where I wept and prayed. When he became composed, he laid his hands on her and gave her a very simple blessing. He later noted, My mother ceased her groaning and received relief from her suffering while my hands were yet on her head. He then recorded in his diary this most insightful observation. He said he had always felt that the reason his mother did not get relief from the bishop's blessing was not because the Lord failed to honor the bishop's blessing, but because the Lord had reserved this blessing for a boy to teach him a lesson that the priesthood in the boy is just as powerful as the priesthood in the man when exercised in righteousness. Tonight I would like to speak about that power, though I will refer to deacons quorum presidents. The principles discussed apply to all Aaronic priesthood youth and their respective leaders, including our teachers quorum presidents and priests' assistants. While serving as a mission president, I observed that there was a dramatic increase in the spirituality and leadership skills of young men during their mission years. If we could somehow quantify these qualities over their Aaronic priesthood and mission years, perhaps they would look something like the line you see on this graph. In my mind, there are at least three key factors that contribute to such dramatic growth in the mission years. One, we trust these young men as never before. Two, we have high but loving expectations of them. And three, we train and retrain them so they can fulfill those expectations with excellence. One might appropriately ask, why could not these same principles be employed with deacons quorum presidents? If that were done, perhaps the growth would commence much earlier and look more like this. For a moment, may I address how these principles might apply to a deacons quorum president? First, we can entrust our deacons quorum presidents with great responsibility. The Lord certainly does, as demonstrated by His willingness to give them keys, meaning the right to preside over and direct the work in their quorum. As an evidence of this trust, we call deacons quorum present by revelation, not solely by seniority or any other similar factor. 
Every leader in this church, including the deacons quorum president, has the right to know and should know that he has been called by revelation. This assurance helps him know that God both trusts him and sustains him. The second and third attributes are interconnected, high expectations, and the related training to fulfill them. I learned a great lesson in the mission field. Missionaries generally rise or fall to the mission president's level of expectation, and so it is with deacons quorum presidents. If they are only expected to conduct quorum meetings and attend bishopric youth committee meetings, then that is all they will do. But you leaders can give them a greater vision, the Lord's vision. And why is vision so critical? Because with increased vision comes increased motivation. Inherent in every calling in this Church is the right to receive revelation. Hence, these deacons quorum presidents need to know they have the right to receive revelation to recommend their counselors, the right to receive revelation concerning rescue of the lost, and the right to receive revelation to train the quorum members in their duties. A wise leader will teach the deacons quorum president those principles that will be helpful in obtaining revelation. He may teach him the unequivocal promise of the Lord, If thou shalt ask, thou shalt receive revelation upon revelation. The Lord is most generous in giving revelation. Did he not remind Joseph and Oliver, As often as thou hast inquired, thou hast received instruction of my spirit. And so it can be with you deacons quorum presidents. The Lord loves you and wants to reveal to you his mind and will. Could you ever imagine the Lord having a problem he could not solve? I can't. Because you are entitled to revelation, he can help you solve every concern you have as president of your quorum if you will but seek his help. You wonderful leaders might teach the deacons quorum president that revelation is not a substitute for hard work and homework. President Eyring once asked President Lee, How do I get revelation? President Lee responded, If you want to get revelation, do your homework. The wise leader might discuss with his deacons quorum president some of the spiritual homework he might do in preparing to recommend his counselors. He might need to ask and answer questions such as, Who would be a good example that could lift the other boys? Or who would be sensitive to the needs of those who face special challenges? And finally, this wise leader might teach him how to recognize and act upon revelation when it comes. We live in an action-packed, fast-paced world where bright lights and high-volume speakers are the norm. But these young men need to know that this is the world's way, not the Lord's way. The Savior was born in the relative anonymity of a manger. He performed the most magnificent and incomparable act of all time in the quiet of a garden. And Joseph received his first vision in the seclusion of a grove. God's answers come by the still, small voice. Feelings of peace or comfort, impressions to do good, enlightenment, sometimes in the form of tiny seeds of thought, which, if reverenced and nourished, can grow into spiritual redwoods. Sometimes these impressions or thoughts might even cause you, deacons quorum present, to recommend as a counselor or extend an assignment to a young man who is currently less active. Years ago, as a stake presidency, we felt impressed to call a good man a stake clerk. At the time, he was temporarily struggling with regular Church attendance. We knew, however, that if he accepted the calling, he would do a marvelous job. We extended the call, but he replied, No, I don't think I can do it. Then an impression came. I said, Well, I guess the Glendale Stake won't have a stake clerk then. Shocked, he responded, 
what are you talking about? You have to have a state clerk. I replied, do you want us now to call someone else to serve a state clerk when the Lord impressed us to call you? Okay, he said, I'll do it. And do it, he did. There are not only many men, but many boys who will respond to a call when they know the Lord is calling them and that the Lord needs them. Next, you can let this deacon's quorum president know that one of the Lord's expectations of him is to rescue the lost, both less active and non-member. The Lord declared his central mission in these terms, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. If it is a priority of the Savior to rescue the lost, if it is a priority of President Monson to do so as demonstrated by his entire life, should it not be a priority of every leader, every deacon's quorum president in this Church to do likewise? At the core of our leadership as a central part of our ministry should be the burning, driving, unrelenting resolve to go get the lost and bring them back. One young man who was visited by his quorum member said, It was surprising today when 30 people just came up to my house. It makes me want to go to church now. How can a youth resist love and attention like that? I am thrilled when I hear the many stories of deacons quorum presidents who have caught the vision and occasionally are teaching all or a part of the lesson in their quorum meetings. Several weeks ago, I attended a deacons quorum class. A 12-year-old boy gave a 25-minute lesson on the Atonement. He commenced by asking his fellow deacons what they thought the Atonement was. Then he shared some meaningful scriptures and asked thoughtful questions to which they responded. Realizing, however, there was more time than remaining lesson material, he had enough presence of mind and perhaps some forewarning from his father to ask the leaders who were present what questions they had been asked about the Atonement and their missions and their responses. He then concluded with his testimony. I listened in awe. I thought to myself, I don't recall ever giving a significant part of a lesson when I was an Aaronic priesthood youth. We can raise the bar and vision for these young men, and they will respond. You leaders lift these deacons' quorum presidents best when you let them lead out and you step back from the spotlight. You have magnified your calling best not when you give a great lesson, but when you help them give a great lesson. Not when you rescue the one, but when you help them do so. There is an old saying, do not die with your music still in you. In like manner, I would say to you adult leaders, do not get released with your leadership skills still in you. Teach our youth at every opportunity. Teach them how to prepare an agenda, how to conduct meetings with dignity and warmth, how to rescue the one, how to prepare and give an inspired lesson, and how to receive revelation. This will be the measure of your success, the legacy of leadership and spirituality you leave ingrained in the hearts and minds of these young men. If you deacons quorum presence will magnify your calling, you will be instruments in God's hands even now, for the priesthood in the boy is just as powerful as the priesthood in the man when exercised in righteousness. And then when you make temple covenants and become the missionaries and future leaders of this Church, you will know how to receive revelation, how to rescue the one, and how to teach the doctrine of the kingdom with power and authority. Then you will have become the youth of the noble birthright. Of this I so testify in the name of Jesus Christ, who is the Savior and Redeemer of the world. Amen.